Bible, I want to invite you to open up to um, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of the New Testament. And adoption is always a very special thing. This past week, though, there was a story that many of you probably saw in the news that, um, of an adoption that took place in Michigan of a young man by the name of Michael Clark, Jr. Uh, he was a young man, five-year-old kindergartner, who was being adopted by the Eaton family. And um, it was one of many adoptions. It was adoption day at the courthouse, and so it was one of many adoptions going on that day. But this one stood out because it wasn't just uh, the young man and his family there. He had invited his entire kindergarten class to attend and to be a part of the ceremony and to watch it and to celebrate with him. And, and I just want to show you the video of this because I think it, it introduces um, something that, that when an assembly of people come together for, for purposes, oftentimes there are things that we note that maybe we wouldn't otherwise. So if you take a look at this, please. Day in Kent County. And one East Grand Rapids boy was so excited. He invited his entire kindergarten class to watch his parents officially become his parents. 13 on your side, Nina Lasalle joins us now with that story, and it is sure to pull on some heartstrings, Nina. Oh, and it will. As I was writing and editing this story, I had to pause a few times to collect myself because of how amazing and touching this is for kindergartner Michael Clark Jr. and his new parents. A big family. Family doesn't have to be DNA. Family is with an even bigger heart. Michael Orlando Clark Jr. Yay! He is a very active and silly, silly kindergartner. Invited his entire class to watch this moment. It is ordered, Michael, that you're forever mom and dad will be David Andrew Eaton and Andrew Louise Melvin. And cheer him on. One, two, three. Sometimes their journeys have been very long. They've included miracle and change for the children and family and incredible community support as you're able to see today in Michael's adoption hearing with his whole kindergarten class and school being here to say we love you, we support you, and we'll be here not only today but in all the years in the future. It's safe to assume how Michael feels. We've been working with Catholic Charities and the workers there have just been amazing. They, and I love my daddy. That, wow. I. <laughs> love my daddy so much. This is just too much. This is just too much. Um, yeah, it's been amazing, obviously, how supportive they've all I love been. my daddy too much. You love him too much? <laughs> and so as you watch that, that's a touching story. But the thing that sets it apart was the gathering of the extra attendees. And uh, when that beautiful scene became richer because of the extra guests that came and assembled and shared in the joy and the happiness of that moment. And for this Christmas season, we're going to take a similar approach. We're going to go back and look at a theme that I have entitled, Some Assembly Required. And the emphasis of our series is going to be on the word assembly. Uh, originally, when I came up with this idea, I was going to do the, uh, the assembly required part and talk about something different. But the more I looked at the Christmas story, it struck me that um, there are moments in the Christmas story when oftentimes there are one or two people who are just interacting with God, who are um, learning from God. They are 
wrestling with the incredible news or the calling that God is asking of them. You find them wrestling and, and, and finding them submitting themselves to cooperate with God, to obediently follow him uh, through what he's asked them to do. But every so often in the Christmas story, there's an assembly of people who gather. And when those folks assembly, there's assemble, there's usually a, a certain thing that is being highlighted in that moment, both for the good and for the bad. And so there are lessons for us if we pause and we look at those lessons when, when people assemble. And so I hope over the next three, four weeks here, I guess three weeks in Christmas Eve, um, just to think about those instances in Scripture. And the first assembly that we are going to look at today is a text that we would oftentimes skip over or at least zone out a little bit as it is brought to our attention or read for us. Most of us find it an unlikely source of encouragement because of the nature of the text. And the first assembly is a group from history that we read about in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 17, that comes in the form of a genealogy. Now, I know if you uh, come to church, the thing that you're excited to think about and read through are genealogies, right? Uh, none of us get real excited about a genealogy, and so it's easy for us to think when Matthew writes this in Matthew 1.1, that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that a genealogy, at least to me, feels a lot like watching somebody else's vacation pictures. There may be some nice things, some cool pictures every once in a while, but I didn't live it. I don't know it. I don't know all these names, these people. I didn't, this isn't my history. This is my memories. And so it's easy to kind of tune them out and ask the question, what does that have to do with me? But when you stop and you really look around at this assembled group that Matthew goes on to list in the next 16 verses, what you find are these things. This is the way I'm going to summarize this today and, and hopefully get you to buy into the idea of, of spending 20 minutes of your life thinking about a genealogy with me. That Matthew 1 is, easily, is an easily overlooked passage that unearths the kingdom potential available to all because Christ has come. See, Matthew didn't just go and pick out random names without thoughts or without purpose. The more that you look at the names that Matthew picks in this story, you begin to find the truths and the lessons of this passage that, that still apply to us. There are truths intertwined and in that Matthew was not just um, being arbitrary when he thought, well, how am I going to tell the story of Jesus? I'm going to start with his genealogy. There is a purpose to it. There are, there's a theme in it that introduces, as we'll see by the time we're done today, that, that runs all the way through both Matthew's own story and the story that Matthew tells us about Jesus. And so what Matthew is doing in Matthew 1 through, uh, Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is introducing us to who Jesus is. Again, verse 1 says he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, which Matthew wrote his account of the story of Jesus to try to convince a Jewish audience and so if you were a Jewish audience, the number one question you're going to ask if someone claims to be your Messiah is, is he descendant of, of Abraham and is he descendant of David? Because if he's not connected to those two people, we're not going to listen to you. And so Matthew begins right where his Jewish audience needs affirmation and confirmation to say, this is why you need to listen to everything else I'm going to say. Because Jesus is attached to David, he's attached to, to Abraham, and so in the beauty of that, you find that who Jesus is, introduced right off the bat, but also what he came to do, he came to be their Messiah, he came to be the fulfillment of their Christ, the one who they had been waiting and, and praying and hoping for, for over a thousand years, maybe two thousand years, 
And so he came to be their Messiah, God's sent one. And you also find out how God is at work in the world. And I think as you look at the, the, the themes that run through this text, that how he is still even at work today. And so Matthew shows us how Jesus fits into the story of God in our world. And as he walks through biblical history, he, he continues in his genealogy with words like these, beginning in verse 2. Um, so stay awake with me. Read along here as we, as we follow his genealogy through the first few verses here. Abraham was the father, father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, not Salmon, but Salmon, Have we got Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asia. And on and on he goes for the next 10 verses, 9 verses, uh, walking through all of these things. On and on Matthew goes through time. You can break it by the time you get to verse 17, if you read the entire text, Matthew, at the end, he, he helps you to, to understand in a culture that didn't have printed books and printed material to be able to carry around and, and uh, just go to the bookshelf and pull out a book, they had to memorize things. And so what Matthew does in many ways is at the end of it, he says there's three groups of 14 names. And so if you're trying to memorize this, uh, you'd have a group of 14, a group of 14, and a group of 14, but they're not just randomly divided. They kind of divide up biblical history. The first section is from Abraham, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that through you and your family, I'm going to bless all the nations on earth. Um, and all the way down to David, where God makes another covenant with David that someday there will be one who sits on the throne of David from your line that will rule over all. And so it brings in the whole covenantal history of, of Abraham, of David. And then you get from David to the exile, that time period after the time period of the kings, when Israel has completely turned its back on God, and God allows the Babylonian Empire to come and, and haul off, carry away so many of the Israelite people and families to Babylon. And they spent 70 years there, and then they're allowed to return back home. And, and the, second, the third group of 14 names kind of covers that, that period there. So he kind of summarizes Israel's history by how he breaks these down. And so, why do you start the best story in the world with history like that? I've started a lot of message over, messages over the years, and in many different ways to try to capture the attention of those who are listening, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, and I will admit that. But why did, I've never had the thought, sitting in my office during the week, you know what would really catch their attention? If I broke out my family tree and read you from my great-great-great-great-grandpa all the way down to today, no one would find that interesting, including myself, okay? Uh, God bless my ancestors, but no one would find that interesting to read in a public setting like this. But Matthew knows that genealogies do matter, especially, again, to the Jewish audience to which he writes, especially if someone is going to make the claim to be the Jewish Messiah, to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah and not be able to trace your ancestry back through David and Abraham would have ended the conversation about who Jesus was immediately with those he was trying to reach. And so Matthew begins there. 
And so in doing so, there are many different nuggets um, that we could kind of mine out of this text. Um, I read an article this week that had 10 different nuggets, and I'm not going to do 10 of them. Uh, But yeah, you can relax. I'm not doing 10 of them. I'm going to do five of them, and one of them is really fast. And so um, I just want to draw some nuggets out of this, because I think as we enter into this Christmas season, and we begin to think, well, what was God be wanting to teach me in this season? I, I think these nuggets can begin to prepare our hearts to say, you know what? Jesus came with a purpose And there is this kingdom potential for God's kingdom to grow in me if I respond and bring myself and put myself in the place that that many of these people did. Um, And so I hope today that you'll you'll learn a few of those nuggets with me. So the first of the five nuggets is this. And this is the one we won't take long at all to talk about. But Matthew number one unearths real people, real places, and a real Jesus. This kind of goes back to that whole historical part of this. And sometimes it's fun to just, uh, every once in a while, there'll be a story uh, floating around the internet of, of another archaeological discovery who verified that King David really was King David or the Israelites really did live where the Bible says they lived. And, and I think it's, it, we went through a time period, probably a couple hundred years ago or, or shorter, where a lot of uh, smart people said, well, the Bible is just fiction. None of those people really existed. But yet, the more time flows and the more that we dig in the ground and important places, the more that you find that Matthew's not just making up random names. There's real people's lives in real places that produced a real Jesus who really lived, who really was. And, and so I, I think there's just a, a helpful reminder at the beginning of this to say, you know what, it's, it's helpful to stop. And, and you may see some of the specials on TV that they question Jesus' existence and all those kind of things. And, and I think this just kind of points us in the direction of the Bible is always set in a real-life context, okay? It's not some mythical thing that maybe happened in the clouds and someone just wrote it down. Real people, real time, real God, real Jesus, okay? So that's number one. Number two is this. I think Matthew unearths a new race that won't die. And when I read this quote, that's not originally with me, but I read it in in an article I was reading about this text, and I had never thought of it this way, that when you go through a genealogy, if you've ever done any work with your family tree, um, there's generally, except for the latest edition of your family, everyone is deceased, right? They've, they've all gone before you, and, and, and we just assume that, right? I can go back to my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and on and on, um, but they're all dead, And as Matthew records this for us, he's recording a line of people who are all dead, minus, well, maybe even by the time he writes it, Joseph's gone, Jesus has gone back to heaven, but everyone in that list, minus Jesus, lived and died. And there's a reason for that. If you look at Luke's version of of the... uh, uh, of, of a genealogy. It's different than Matthew's, but, but Luke takes his genealogy all the way. He doesn't go just to Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. As if to say, you know what? Remember what Adam did? Adam, our first ancestor, he lived. He was given a special place to live by God, and he sinned. And that sin set in motion the fact that every family tree now has a lot of dead people in it. People that we miss people that we grieve, people that lived and died, and, and they spent their time and they're gone now. But all of a sudden, he goes through the genealogy here in Matthew, and he gets to the end, and he reminds us that it all produced Jesus. But then you think of the story of Jesus that Matthew is about to tell us, and it reminds us that, that now in Christ, there is a whole new race of people. 
before Jesus, people had no real hope. To say, what would I tie my hope to to think that there could be life beyond this life? Um, but now, because of Jesus living and dying and raising again, um, those in him have this hope. That we don't grieve, as Paul would later say in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because Jesus has instituted a brand new race of people who, yes, we will live, and yes, we will probably die, but we will live again. And so I think the beauty of that statement um, is, is helpful just to think about. On days, maybe you're in a season that the holidays have reminded you of people you miss. Maybe the season draws out those, that grief and that pain, or that loss, and there's hurt in that. But I'm thankful that as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, um, one of the things he's going to get to at the end of the story of Jesus is that Jesus has introduced a, a new race of people who will not die, whose story does not end in, well, they died, and that was it. But they died, and then life really began if they were in Christ. And so you and I have that hope, and I, I think um, that is helpful. That's a helpful nugget. Now, the last three nuggets I'm going to talk about here um, really all tie together. Um, they're probably could all put, be put in one sentence, but I didn't want to do that. So I'm going to break them out. They all kind of go together and overlap a little bit. And so the third nugget that I want you to see that we want to mine out of this text is this, that Matthew unearths the presence of plenty of rotten fruit on the family tree. Now, don't look at the people you're sitting by, but if you were to look at your family tree, would you say there's probably some rotten fruit somewhere up the branches a little bit? Okay, all right, I see some smiles. Yes, maybe there are. Um, maybe you're, maybe not, but that we all have some rotten fruit in our family, and if you don't know of anybody who's rotten fruit, they may be all thinking of you. So um, it could be that to be wrestled with. Um, but Matthew unearths the presence of, a, of plenty of rotten fruit on the family tree. And as you read this text, um, there are, if you st stop and begin, some of the people we know lots of things about, some of them we don't know much about. But those that we do know much about, the, many of them did wonderful things. God used their life to do a lot of cool things. But probably almost all of them, there's these moments where their behavior or their decisions or their actions or their, their life is very contrary to what you would think God would honor God, would help God's plan move forward, would be pleasing to God. There's a lot of moments of rotten fruit, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but just even the, the heroes of that, think of Abraham. Abraham is the man who's lifted up as, as the, the example of what it means to have faith in God, and yet Abraham has moments where, in moments of fear, he lies about who his wife is, says, you're my sister, which is creepy on many levels. But, uh, uh, but he lies. He's got moments of deception and moments where he wrestles with his flesh. David, a man, that, again, who was the, the one that all Israel hoped that the Messiah would be like. Yet how many times do we find David, especially later in his life, struggling with adultery, with covering it up, with all kinds of things that take place in his family. And so... This is not about a list of people that are perfect. I love what Frederick Bruner said about Matthew's genealogy. He says this, that one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available in order, in turn, to insert them into his record, and so it seems to preach the gospel. 
The gospel, that is, that God can overcome and forgive sin and can use soiled but repentant persons for his great purpose in history. And I like that. Because you think, well, why didn't he just go pick the good people? Well, there weren't good people. This is what he had. They were all people with flawed lives, broken lives, sinful lives. And so when Matthew begins to unearth that, um, he just points us in the direction of, of some people whose lives were used by God in spite of their flaws and their imperfections. And I hope that's comforting to you because I bet all of us standing before God, we quickly see our rotten fruits. But it's comforting to know that God didn't have a group of people who were um, perfect and he used them and now the rest of us just get to try to do the best we can. God has always worked with, used, walked into lives of people with a lot of rotten fruit. And so the fourth thing I want you to see just flows right out of that. Listen to this one. It's Matthew unearths how the rarely included become the fully welcomed. And there are two groups of people that are brought into this genealogy that most Jewish people would have excluded, especially in that time period, would have excluded quickly. There are women mentioned in this text, and there are Gentiles mentioned in this text. And for a normal Jewish person in Jesus' day, neither of them would have been welcomed in your family tree. Neither of them would have brought you any credibility and yet Matthew, I think going back to that quote, draws into these. Now, the, the thing that's interesting, when you think of the four ladies' names that are mentioned, or the four ladies, not all of their names are mentioned, but he implies their stories that, that we should know about. Um, when he goes back and he looks at those stories, um, one of the things that I think is helpful to realize is that just like there are heroes like Abraham and David that we would think about, there were heroes uh, that were women in the Jewish culture, Rachel and Rebecca and ladies like that, that, that were in the family line of Jesus, that Matthew could have highlighted the, the good ladies, but he doesn't go there. He goes to four of the most scandalous Stories, at least two or three of them have the most scandalous stories that you're going to find in the Old Testament. Um, you read the story of Tamar, and they'll never make a VeggieTales about that because it's rated R at many levels, right? The story of Tamar is just all kinds of messed up, right? Uh, you read the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Adultery, covering it up, a, a husband dies, and just that's soap opera stuff, right? That's pretty ugly things. But David points to that. And David brings in uh, Rahab, who happened to have, every time Rahab's name was, she had the name attached to her name, right? Rahab, the prostitute, right? She didn't, she's not your pillar of virtue. Um, and then there's uh, Ruth, or is that Ruth? Ruth's the fourth one, I think. And, and yet um, her, she is brought in and, and she's got a her, beautiful story, but she's not even Jewish. She's not even an Israelite. She's a Moabitess, which Jewish people hated the Moabites. And so Matthew brings in these people that for the longest time were uninvited, unthought of, and probably even more aggressively thought poorly of. They were never included when the Jews thought of, hey, what's, who are we going to invite to God's big party? We would never include those people. And yet Matthew fully includes them and he welcomes them and I think in doing so what he is doing is he is setting the stage for what the ministry and the life of Jesus was going to be all about and my favorite part of this is this one number five I think Matthew in this text unearths the reason that Jesus came I think when you think of all the names that are listed there the particular things he mentions 
I think he's trying to remind you of why Jesus came. Now, I want us to not think of Matthew as just some letter that exists out of nowhere, that poof, it came out of the sky, and it's here. Matthew was a real guy. And if you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you read along until you get to chapter 9, and you realize that Matthew had a real story too. Matthew had a story that kind of echoed some of those shady moments that he points to in the genealogy. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 says this, As Jesus went on from there, he had just healed a guy and done this incredible miracle. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Just pause and think about that. We, we, we don't like paying taxes. Nobody likes that. And, and we may pay our taxes and begrudgingly say bad things about the person we have to write a check to or whatever. Um, but we don't have the, the, the vile hatred that Jewish people did. Because if you were a tax collector in Matthew's time, in Jesus' time, you got that intentionally because you set up a contract with the Roman government who was occupying and enslaving the Jewish people at the time. You made a contract with Rome that you would tax your own people um, and that you would tax them at such a level that Rome would get what they wanted, but you also would tax and get rich off of the deal. And so tax collectors were oftentimes wealthy people, um, well-to-do, but they were hated and despised. In fact, they were so hated that when you wanted to have a nickname for the bad people in society, it was the tax collectors and the sinners. So they had their own category of villainy and evil. All right? Before there was Despicable Me, there was the tax collectors. All right? There was this terrible group of people that everybody hated. And so Jesus walks up to the tax collector booth, and he sees Matthew sitting there. Now, Jesus already had some disciples with him, it seems, in the text. And people like Peter or James or John... They would have not thought well of Matthew. They would have had the insults ready, maybe spit in their general direction, maybe some snide comments, some evil prayer of imprecatory evil things that would happen to them. That was what you did with tax collectors. But Matthew's story was different. Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And Matthew got up and probably turned his business over to some of his associates and he followed him. And he became a disciple. And I wonder how long it took for all the other disciples to be comfortable having Matthew around, right? Matthew was just the epitome of all that's wrong in the world. And now he's one of us. Or at least he's one of Jesus' guys. And I'm sure there was moments where they wrestled with that. And so Matthew follows Jesus. And Matthew followed Jesus knowing that, hey, I'm coming from a place that's not pretty. I'm coming from a place where I have been hated. I have betrayed my own people. I have overtaxed my people probably. I've done a lot of things that a lot of people aren't really impressed with me and I'm not probably proud of in his own life. And Jesus says to follow him. And so where do they go? Uh, chapter 9, verse 10. I'll quickly read through the rest of this. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So not only did he invite this crazy tax collector Matthew into his circle, Jesus says, well, hey, we've got to have lunch. We've got to have supper. So why don't you, we'll go to your house, Matthew. And why don't you call all your friends? And the only friends that Matthew had were other tax collectors because nobody else wanted to be his friend. And so they go to his house and they have lunch, supper, whatever it is, whatever meal it was, at Matthew's house. And many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So you read Matthew's um, genealogy and you get all these shady characters that show up there and you begin to think man why did Matthew do that 
it's because I think that Matthew found a great deal of comfort in those stories. That just because those people had a shady past, they had some things, they had some baggage, that wasn't the end of their story. God was still willing to welcome and accept and receive um, the unwanted, the unlikely, because Matthew was one of those people. And so Matthew, I think, found it very attractive that Jesus would welcome him into his circle. Most rabbis wouldn't do that. Jesus would welcome him in, and he invested him, him, and he trained him, and he led him, and prepared him, and equipped him, and sent him to be one of his 12 representatives to preach who he was. And so Jesus gathers with all of Matthew's friends. Um, when the Pharisees saw this in verse 11, they asked Jesus' disciples. They wouldn't go in because going into the room would make them unclean, so they wouldn't go in. But why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he quotes a verse from Isaiah in verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, and you can probably imply in that text the self-righteous, those who don't think they need help, those who don't think they need a doctor, those who don't think that they need extra help. They're fine because they're trusting in their own works to be right before God. But for people like Matthew who knew where they stood with God, who knew they were outside of where God probably wanted them to be, God, Jesus said, I've come to call them. And Matthew reinforces that with that quote from Isaiah. And so as we kind of think through this Christmas season, I just would ask for a couple of things for you to think about. Um, three things. They're not on the screen, so just you can jot them down if you want to. But number one is this. There's probably some rotten fruit that's part of my story and your story. And it's probably helpful to own that. It's probably helpful to own that and say, you know what, God, I'm going to stop this whole charade that I've got my act together. I'm fine. don't need any help from you or from other people. I'm just good enough on my own. But it's time for us to own some rotten fruit. The reason that many of those people that are listed both in the genealogy and as you keep reading through Matthew, the reason that so many of those people found this connection with God is because they knew there was rotten fruit. They didn't know how to fix it, but they thought Jesus could. And so maybe it's time for us this to be a season of repentance where we just honestly look ourselves in the mirror and say, God, show me my rotten fruits. Show me where I fit in the shady parts of this genealogy because their story is my story. And help me to own that and repent of that. Number two, I am invited into God's big plan even with all my rotten fruit though. I'm not asking you to look in the mirror and think, oh, here's the list of all the things I've done and here's why I can't have a walk with God. Here's why God would never love me or invest me or love me. You see, God takes everybody because that's all the only people he's got. The only people God has is people that are full of rotten fruits and he welcomes them and invites them in to God's big plan. And number three, I just want you to consider who you are trusting in to be right with God. Consider who you are trusting in to be right with God. Are you trusting in yourself and what you can do and your own good works, your own um, better than a lot of people approach to life? Or have you given up that game and said, you know what, I, I, I'm never going to outdo anybody because the only one that matters, the only standard I need to be measured against is that of Christ. And when I measure myself against him, I am woefully inadequate. My rotten fruit quickly becomes visible. And so I need to trust in someone else 
I need to trust in the one who came to be the doctor, the one who came to bring healing and help to the sick and to those who needed it spiritually in their life. And that is the one that Matthew's trying to introduce us to. That is Jesus. And so let's own our rotten fruits. Let's step towards our Father who welcomes those full of rotten fruits. And let's trust in the one who has done everything that's needed in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection to help us overcome that rotten fruit and to become something beautiful in the sight of God through Christ. And so as you go through this season, I hope that you'll take time to meditate on, on things like that. Um, the season oftentimes is one where we, we try to make it look pretty and beautiful, um, but boy, right below that is a lot of brokenness in our life. And I think Matthew writes good news to people who are broken. And that's us. So let's pray. Let's ask for his help in that, please.